So uh, today I'd like to welcome Dr. Phil uh, Verhoff. Uh, he will be talking on healthcare reform in 2017. What should ICU physicians support? So just to give you a little bit of background, he uh, got his PhD in pharmacology at Case Western, also got his MD there, um, trained in both internal medicine and pediatrics at UCLA, and followed up with a dual adult and pediatric uh, critical care fellowship um, at University of Chicago, where he's remained and probably looking for more fellowships and training yeah, in the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason why he's here speaking on this topic today is that um, I uh, saw in chest last year a, a nice point counterpoint addressing the um, whether ICU physicians should support single payer healthcare in this country. And um, he and his group uh, very nicely and eloquently addressed that issue and provided strong backing for it. Um, so this is a, an appropriate topic. And additionally, he's, uh, you know, he's on the Board of Advisors for Physicians for National Health Program, which is an organization started in uh, 1987 um, up in Boston um, addressing this very issue. And, uh, so thanks for coming, Phil. Yeah, no problem. Um, thanks for inviting me. I, I, uh, I'm in town, actually, because there's a, the ATS meeting is next weekend. And then this weekend is the American Association of Immunology meeting. So I was like, well, this is kind of convenient. I could give a, give a talk out here on this stuff. And, um, and so we're ultimately going to um, go through a little bit about the current state of the healthcare system, and then through my arguments for why I think single payer is a good idea. Just for the sake of being thorough, I don't have any, uh, you know, financial disclosures or conflicts of interest, but I do do a lot of work um, in healthcare healthcare advocacy for uh, the organizations that you see here. So if you thought you were going to get a completely unbiased presentation, um, think again. <laughs> but I try and be somewhat balanced. So we will go through uh, a little bit about why healthcare reform is still necessary. We'll talk a little bit about the current system. We'll talk about the AHCA. Um, and, you know, literally I'm still making changes to the slides like hours ago because uh, of how current this is. And then I'll talk a little bit about single payer as an alternative for ICU docs specifically and, and physicians in general to, to consider getting behind. And this is sort of a funny topic in general for me because, you know, I study like the immunology of sepsis. And this is really completely disconnected from, you know, why I have a KO8 and, and why the University of Chicago has decided to keep me there. Um, but it's really something that I do um, because I really believe in it. So, um, so why are we still talking about healthcare reform? You know, yeah, maybe this was all fixed by the ACA, but of course the current administration wants to repeal and replace that. And, and in reality, you know, 20, 29 million Americans still lack health insurance even under the, the current system. And that lack of health insurance is estimated to be responsible for anywhere between 15 and 30,000 deaths. And so. How do you come up with a number like that? You basically try and look at healthcare disparities among the insured and the uninsured, and then estimate what impact being uninsured uh, does in terms of you know accelerating your mortality. So obviously it's imperfect, but um, but certainly people have tried to pin this down. And of course we are the only developed nation in the world who does not guarantee healthcare for all of its citizens. So um, what should ICU docs support? Well. You know, you could, um, you know, well, this reflects your personal opinions. You could change nothing, leave in place the ACA, um, you know, and presumably continue to support it and not let it collapse. So, of course, one of the things that's uh, hotly under debate right now is the fact that the ACA 
has a provision to pay insurance companies to continue to stay in the market. Um, and in spite of that, Aetna has decided to, to back out. Just today they made that announcement. They're not going to offer marketplace plans anymore. But you know, implicit in keeping the ACA is that we continue to support it and not let it collapse. Or we repeal it and go back to the way things were, were before 2010, which is, of course, never going to happen. Or you know, maybe we uh, repeal it and replace it with Trump care, whatever that means. So these are all quotes from our current president in the last uh, six months or so. Everybody's going to be taken care of. We'll get rid of the artificial lines around the states. Nobody will be worse off. We won't have cuts. No one will lose coverage. We're going to have insurance for everybody. We will have lower premiums and deductibles and take care of pre-existing conditions. So he's sort of living in a fantasy world unless he's actually supporting single payer because there's no way that any of the um, proposed uh, measures that have come across the table so far would do any of those things uh, unless this is what he actually wanted to do. So um, there is a House bill, H.R. 676, and under a single-payer system, we would have basically improved and expanded Medicare for everybody. So Medicare being a, a government institution, it's government-sponsored insurance, um, but the delivery system remains private. So you as a physician don't become an employee of the federal government, um, and the hospitals are not owned by the federal government. It's, it's simply uh, public financing of the insurance where private delivery remains in place. And then under this system, everybody would be covered. There would be you know, minimal or no deductibles. Access to care is, of course, based on need, not your income or the, whether or not you have insurance. Insurance risk is managed by risk pooling alone. And so this gets at the concept of what insurance actually is, which by definition, it's a bunch of people paying into a pot um, to be covered when something bad happens. And the idea is you want a blend of healthy people and sick people in that um, because that spreads that risk around. And of course, with health insurance, you never know when you're going to get ill um, or when something catastrophic is going to happen. And so, you know, at sort of a fundamental level, perhaps the best way to manage insurance risk is either to have an enormous population in there where you spread it around as many people as possible or to cherry pick, which is currently what goes on, where insurers try and only have people that are healthy in their plans. And so, um, you know, ultimately the, of course, most equitable way to do it would be uh, simply by risk pooling and having the biggest pool possible, which, you know, why not the entire population? Of course, there would be vastly simplified administration, which I'll get into later. And, and um, ideally, this would minimize um, the sort of centralized management of care and put it back on physicians uh, to do basically what they think is best for patients. So. Of course, we can turn to the Brits to see that they said that the healthcare reform process exposes how corporate influence renders our government incapable of making policy on the basis of evidence and the public interest. This is from 2009 as they observed us trying to figure out how to get the ACA going. And so just a little bit of a review of our healthcare system. This is our health expenditures per person. Uh, and this is for the last year that we have that as an option. And just in case you can't read the letters here, I highlighted it for you. Here we are, the United States, all the way on the left side of this graph. And then it breaks it down into public spending, which is spending through the VA, Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health Services, and private spending, which is everything else. So it's private insurance, it's self-pay, it's premiums, it's co-pays, and all of that. And you can see, if you look at this, that we spend about 50% of our uh, spending is within the private sector, which is actually more than any of these other countries until you get all the way down here to uh, Russia and Chile, 
where they spend about 50% um, public and 50% private. And this to me is somewhat striking that all of these countries are assuring universal coverage and the majority of their spending comes from the public sector. I think this is somewhat telling. Um, and, and indeed, our public sector spending is pretty similar to that of the next six countries down. And honestly, our total spending, uh, our public sector spending is more than you know, France or the UK uh, or Japan spend at all on a per person basis. So um, I think there's a couple of points here. One, we're already spending a tremendous amount within the public sector, but more than that, um, we have such a high amount that's spent in the private sector, and this is really not consistent with any of the other countries that can or do assure universal health coverage. So we're paying more per capita, we're paying more um, uh, per GDP. I didn't show that data, but that's of course going to be the case. What do we get? Ostensibly not much. So this is from the Commonwealth Fund. This is data from 2011, the last uh, time that this, or the most recent this is available. And this is a ranking of 11 countries, including the United States, the UK, the Swiss, the Swedes, Norwegians, New Zealand, Netherlands, Germany, France, Canada, and Australia. And the, the top row is our overall ranking. Here we are, 11 out of 11. Um, and what are the things that we fall flat on? Uh, meeting preventative care measures, health equity, efficiency, and then access to care as a function of cost. Now, there are a few things that we do do particularly well. Uh, what is this one? This is providing effective care, so good. We do that. Apparently, we provide very patient-centered care, which I sometimes have a hard time believing. But, um, you know, the, the fact that we kind of shake out so poorly against all of these other countries, I think is somewhat problematic and suggests that there is maybe a quality issue here as well. So, we're, you know, our, our quality is not so good, but, you know, then you ask the question, what drives our high cost and yet our poor quality? What is the driver of that cost? Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's moral hazard, which is the disconnect between knowing how much your healthcare costs and actually paying for it. You know, people criticize our system sometimes as saying, well, people don't know how much it costs and they go to the ER for, you know, any little thing. And, and really, we need citizens to have more of an awareness of how much their healthcare costs. Uh, another way of saying that is maybe we need more skin in the game. I think this is kind of nonsense. And, you know, this is one metric for uh, why I don't think we need more skin in the game because we already pay the most out of pocket of any other developed country in the world on a per person basis. And so, you know, we're already paying more than anybody else, and yet we're still having these drivers of healthcare costs. So, the, the argument that we should actually pay more out of pocket is crazy um, because other countries can pull this off uh, without shifting all of these costs to their citizens. So, um, I, I think that that argument doesn't hold a lot of water for me. Um, so what about overuse? Maybe we are really just overusing care and that's what's driving costs. Well, we don't go to the doctor more often than anybody in these other countries. We only go on average uh, four times per year. I mean, like, look at the Japanese, right? They're going like once a month to the doctor, which is crazy. Now, apparently the Japanese system doesn't, uh, well, I, I actually don't know the ins and outs of it. My wife is, is half Japanese and, and she could comment extensively about it, but, um, but, you know, we are not at least going to the doctor more often than anybody else. And, and if you look at other metrics that might be measures of overuse of care, um, there's no evidence that we're really doing a whole lot more uh, of going to the doctor or the hospital than, than uh, th that would be the driver of cost. So, you know, what really is contributing to all of this excess spending um, with poor quality and, and more out of pocket and all of that? Well, 
I think this slide largely speaks for itself, um, but over the last 40 years, you can see that the growth of administrators here in purple has far outpaced the growth of physicians in this country. And somebody has to pay all those salaries. So the fact that we have so many people involved in healthcare administration, um, I think is one place to, to look for why we spend so much money um, and actually get poor quality. Because here we are spending money paying these salaries, um, but we're not getting healthcare out of this, right? This is, this is administrators. And, and you can see the uptick right here during the, the uh, the HMO boom from the early 90s, that's really where things took off. And then when everybody realized HMOs kind of sucked, then you know that has leveled off some, but, but there continues to be growth in administrators that outpaces that of physicians. So I think this, this has to be some clue to this. And, and you know, reflected in this, is a, this is a study that just came out in Annals of Internal Medicine that suggests that we spent twice as much time sitting in front of the computer with the EHR as we do with patients, at least if we're in primary care, which is kind of a shame, right? But of course, we have to do this, not just to document, because that's a good thing, but of course to bill, right? Our billing is largely dependent on how effectively we document. And so I think this is sort of a sad state of affairs. And, and so really, what is it about private insurance that's, that's creating this problem? Well, I think from the get-go, you have to acknowledge that the administrative costs in a private insurance company are at least five to six times that of public plans. And by public plans, I mean things like Medicare or Medicaid. Not to mention all of the time that we lose um, simply engaging with insurance companies or having to hire people to talk to insurance companies or fighting for our patients or you know getting denied care and then spending time to try and um, get that CT scan or whatever it is that we were, we were looking for. And so another way of measuring this is simply um, based on how much money is spent in insurance overhead in the United States. And that's basically all of the money that isn't going to reimburse care. And so on average, an insurance company to keep the lights on is spending $830 per person. The Canadian system, the Germans, the Dutch, you know, the, Germany has a hybrid uh, private insurance system, but it still doesn't have a tremendous amount of insurance overhead like we do here, because this is, of course, going to pay the people that deny claims. It's going for advertising. You know, obviously Medicare doesn't advertise, but uh, the private insurance industry does. And so um, this pays the salaries of administrators. This is where that overhead comes from. Um, and obviously is, is vastly greater here in the United States than it is uh, anywhere else in the world. And, and again, this is money that's being spent that's not resulting in the delivery of healthcare. It's resulting in the maintenance of the private insurance system. Um, so there's that. Then there's this concept of the medical loss ratio, which uh, this is the amount of money that an insurer pays out to claims as a function of total revenue collected in premiums. Um, historically, and by historically I mean 30 years ago, this was 95%, where 95 cents of every dollar taken in by an insurer would be paid out for covering insured uh, folks' medical bills and expenses. And now these numbers are at 80%, which means that insurance companies are keeping 20 cents out of every dollar and not using it to reimburse care. In fact, an insurer calls this a medical loss ratio. They look at reimbursing care for their insured as a loss, because it is. It's a loss in their profits. But of course, this is healthcare. So, you know, it's like, the, the language there bothers me a little bit that, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, insurance company, that you're sustaining a loss paying for my care, which is 
really the only reason that you exist. Um, but you know, so that th these levels are dropping uh, uh, significantly in spite of the ACA trying to, to maintain this. Um, and when you have an insurance company, at least in the United States, it's a race to the bottom. You don't want to be the best insurance plan. You don't want to have a great product at a low premium that covers everything. Because if you do, who's going to want to join your insurance plan? The people that are really sick that need health care. Then you're going to be saddled with a ton of really sick people who are going to cost you, the insurance company, a ton of money and bankrupt you. So the way market forces in the United States work is you try, an insurer tries to offer the least amount uh, for the least amount of money or, uh, and, and you know, try as, to keep as much of that as they can, um, which is, a, you know, of course, a disincentive to taking care of patients. And, and ultimately, you have to remember that they make money by denying claims um, or by only cherry-picking cherry healthy people. And so this, to me, is a financial disincentive to a, a truly just and equitable system. So what else drives healthcare costs in this country? Um, certainly, prescription drug spending does. And, and you can see that we're uh, this has grown substantially, and you know, a little flattening out here during the recession. But uh, as things have picked up, you know, we're we're approaching four hundred billion dollars in uh, prescription drug spending, which is you know tenfold greater than than twenty five years ago, where we were spending forty billion dollars a year. So we spend a tremendous amount. In fact, something like insulin. This is a paper from JAMA last year. In in the span of about seven years, the the average cost of insulin has tripled for patients. Um, which you know is is also kind of wild, and, and ultimately we spend the most on drugs per person again of any other country in the world, and about twice the OECD average. So uh, this is certainly another driver of healthcare costs and healthcare spending in this country. All right, so we've identified the the private insurance industry um, and pharmaceuticals. So some people wonder if, the, if this notion of the practice of defensive medicine and, and the pressures of being afraid of being sued uh, is contributing to um, overuse or misuse or, or not very cost-effective use. And so there was one study that looked at this, and uh, this was a study from 2008 in Health Affairs where they tried to account for all of it. They looked at... Um, you know, inappropriate CT scans for cough or, you know, any range of different things that they thought might be being done uh, uh, as a defensive, um, you know, as a defensive medicine cover your ass kind of thing. And they also looked at malpractice insurance claims and settlements and all of that, bundled all of that together and came up with this maybe contributing to about 2% of healthcare spending. So it's not the 10% or more that, that drug companies drive and of course the, all the, the wasted money in, in, um, in the private insurance industry. So you know, I don't, I don't think that tort reform is the solution to bending the cost curve in the United States. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not important, but I don't think it's the big driver. So what about uh, the provision of inappropriate care? This may actually be a problem. And this is a study now that's almost 15 years old, but it kind of blows my mind. Um, you know, they looked at, retrospectively, at a bunch of different procedures and uh, independently decided, was that an appropriate procedure or not? Like, this is nuts. Like, 16% of people had an inappropriate hysterectomy? Like, inappropriate bypass surgery? Like, these are high-risk procedures that ostensibly were not the right thing to do for people. And, and almost 50% of bypasses are at least of questionable validity. Now, 
obviously this is older and, and you know maybe choosing wisely has changed the way that we all practice but I think that there is at least a solid argument that there are unnecessary procedures going on out there and of course you have to ask why would any patient have an unnecessary procedure done well they don't know better because they're not physicians and you know we don't live in a world where you can say oh I'm gonna go have my cabbage done by this person because you just had a heart attack so it's not like you have that choice um, but more than that it's you know physicians who stand to make money um, potentially uh, in procedures like this or hospital systems that do so it's of course comes back to the money so uh, so let's talk a little bit uh, this is those are the things that I think drive costs it's it's our private insurance system it's pharmaceuticals potentially it's unnecessary procedures and maybe a little bit of the malpractice system let's talk a little bit about what the ACA did for us when it was passed in 2010 so it expanded Medicaid coverage to people at 138% of the federal poverty level. And, and previously, it was anywhere between 50 and 100% of the FPL um, would get you Medicaid. And that would very much depend on the state that you were in. Um, just so that you know, that the federal poverty level for one person is around $17,000 per year. So 100% of that is an income of $17,000 a year, which is not uh, very much. But that, you know, it previously was... Uh, a pretty low, uh, you had, a, it was a pretty high bar or you had to make very little money in order to qualify for Medicaid. So the ACA expanded that to 138% of the FPL. So that's one way that we got more people covered. And then if you were between 139% and 400% of the FPL, you would qualify for subsidies to actually buy your insurance from the government. And this was on a sliding scale as a function of your income. You know, the closer you got to 400% of the FPL, the lower your subsidy. But that was to basically get you to get out there and buy an insurance plan on the state-based health insurance exchanges. And the, the idea of creating the exchanges was um, previously, if you didn't make any money or you had a lot of medical problems, there were not commercial insurance products available for you. So this mandated that there be commercial insurance products that these people would have access to. Uh, so that was another thing that the ACA gave us. Um, it mandated that citizens purchase health insurance. So this was, um, in, you know, to many people, this was a, a gross overreach of the federal government's power to actually say that you must buy a commercial product. And, uh, and I can get behind that. It does seem a little bit weird to, to have my government telling me what I should and should not spend my money on. But um, that's semantics and, and, you know, a different debate to have right now. Um, the ACA also mandated that this medical loss ratio must not be less than 85% for a big insurer or less than 80% for a small insurer. So what this means is that they had to uh, reimburse care uh, with at least 80 cents of, of every dollar or 85 cents of every dollar if you were a big insurer. Um, children up to 26 can stay on their parents' plans. It banned the exclusion of pre-existing conditions as a way to deny somebody insurance. And this was a pretty big deal because previously, you know, if you had a pre-existing condition, you might have a very difficult time of getting uh, health care as Jimmy Kimmel so eloquently stated last week. And this, of course, got a lot of press because his kid was born with Tetralogy of Fallot. And his point was before the ACA, he might not have been able to get health care insurance because of his pre-existing condition of, of TOF. Um, it would ban uh, cost sharing for preventative care. So you turn 50, you need a colonoscopy to screen for colon cancer. You cannot be forced to pay for any part of that colonoscopy. That has to be at no cost to you because you don't want cost to be a barrier to getting appropriate preventative care. So it wasn't everything, but 
uh, a number of different preventative care measures fell under this so that um, so that it would you know encourage people to do the things that that we think uh, evidence implies that they should be doing um, and then it had this notion of the 10 essential benefits um, it basically said an insurance plan must cover all these things including outpatient care inpatient care ER maternity newborn drugs physical rehab labs mental health preventive care pediatric dental and vision care and then uh, money for uh, chronic disease management because previously an insurer might say, oh, we'll only cover your inpatient care in the event of a catastrophe, but nothing else. Or we won't cover your uh, medications, or we won't cover labs, or we won't cover you know, maternity care. You could have insurance plans that would have holes in their coverage for any of those various things. The ACA mandated that all of these plans cover all of these things at a minimum. Um, and then there were uh, some delivery and payment reform um, elements to it too, like value-based care, bundled payments, uh, setting up the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and, and of course ACOs, which are basically just physician-led uh, HMOs. So was there anything specific to ICU care? There wasn't a whole lot. Um, there had been some, some push to get palliative care, you know, reimbursement for palliative care time uh, in the initial bill, but of course this was pulled out because of Sarah Palin's death panels. Um, but I think this is actually a very important part um, that is relevant for us in the ICU. And this banned an insurer from having a lifetime dollar limit uh, on benefits. So if you maxed out your million dollars for your critical illness, then the insurer would be like, okay, you're on your own. You know, you've got to cover the cost from here on out. It barred that. And of course, anybody who spent any prolonged period of time in the ICU, you can get to a million dollars um, with, with relative ease, especially, you know, I work in pediatrics. Like these kids that are born at, at 24 weeks and live in the NICU for three months, I mean, they're at $2 million by the time they're discharged. Um, it also barred insurers from simply rescinding coverage. You know, they're like, oh, you're in the hospital, you've been there for a month, we're just gonna go ahead and pull your policy because um, you're costing us too much. So these were some consumer protections that I think were, um, were good and are particularly relevant to us in the ICU. So, I mean, how is the ACA? How's it been going? It really depends on who you ask. Obamacare is a money loser for insurers who are giving up or Obamacare patients filled more prescription drugs but, uh, but paid less for them, so that's good. Um, you know, this was a popular Obamacare uh, provision, gives young adults coverage, a, a feel-good story about a kid who was able to stay on her parents' plan. Um, oh, but the choices may be limited for Obamacare shoppers. You may only have one insurer in your state, or um, even worse, that insurer, you know, there may not be an in-network physician in your region. Um, or, you know, there are these crazy stories where the surgeon was in network, but the anesthesiologist was not. And so the people got these big bills for the anesthesia that their insurance company wasn't going to cover because that anesthesiologist was not in network. So, you know, there are a lot of ways that choices were limited under the ACA, but of course that had to be because um, private insurance companies needed to find a way to, to rein costs in, and that's one way that they did it. So, you know, it was clear that the ACA entrenched a multi-tiered complex system, shifted some people to private insurance, some people to Medicaid. Well, what about that? Is Medicaid good? Is Medicaid bad? Well, here's an argument that Medicaid is bad. This was a cold call study that was published in New England Journal a few years ago. They basically said, my child was just seen in the ER with an X. In this case, it was a broken bone. Um, they splinted it and said to call you for a follow-up appointment so we can do the definitive thing. 
And of course, the person on the other end of the phone says, well, what's your insurance? And if you said it's private, 98% of the time, you were able to get an appointment within two weeks with an orthopedist. Uh, if you said it was Medicaid, it was only 20% of the time. So this was the case across specialties. I mean, it's particularly bad that even with private insurance, you can't get follow-up to see psychiatry, which is just a, a separate sort of condemnation of our, of our capacity to, to manage mental health in this country. But, you know, it was basically across the board for all the subspecialties. If you said you had Medicaid, you were way less likely to be able to get a follow-up appointment. But uh, in Oregon, they've been doing this thing, that, this Oregon experiment, which is, on the surface, is crazy. Oregon was like, hey, we're going to, you know, expand our Medicaid rolls, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to get a bunch of people on there, and then they realized they didn't have enough money for it. So they created a natural experiment where they randomized people to Medicaid or not because they didn't have anything else they could do, and now they get to compare people who were on Medicaid and who weren't. And, you know, they find that, you know, these are pretty small differences here. But there's maybe some benefit to being on Medicaid compared to not in terms of some of these uh, screening metrics. So yeah, maybe it's a good thing. Um, I think time will tell uh, overall. There have been some publications on the Oregon experiment that haven't shown a lot of differences or, or haven't shown that Medicaid saves much money, but, but it has not been uh, in existence for very long, this, this sort of natural experiment. So you know, Medicaid's got its pros and cons. What about private insurance under the ACA? Well, the ACA made underinsurance the norm. Previous to the ACA, most employer-based plans would actually pay 87 cents out of every dollar of your healthcare costs. And this is the concept of actuarial value. So your employer-based plan would have a very good actuarial value. On the ACA, the marketplace plans would range anywhere from bronze to platinum, where a bronze plan would pay 60% on average of the cost, you would be responsible for 40% of the cost. Um, and then the more you, know, you move up in your metallic tiers, the more that your insurance plan will cover. So they basically set the guidelines out to the private insurers. You can create different plans like this um, with more or less uh, responsibility for cost sharing on, uh, on the patients. And ultimately, this is actually pretty awful. And, and let's just walk through a, a little uh, example of that. And um, So if you go to, to the New York State Health Exchange and pick out the cheapest bronze plan that they have there, um, and you're a family of four, and you're at 401% of the federal poverty limit. Um, so that's around $100,000 a year for income. So not, not terrible, right? Um, but you know, I picked 401% because this means that you don't qualify for subsidies uh, to help you buy plans on the, uh, on the exchanges, but your family doesn't have health insurance. You know, you're, you're running a small independent business, you run a bookstore like my sister does in New York State, you know, she doesn't have any insurance, so, um, so you need to buy something on the, on the uh, exchanges. The cheapest plan is going to be about $12,500 with an $8,000 deductible. That means that you have to spend the first $8,000 have to come out of your pocket before your insurance kicks in, and then it's a 50% coinsurance after that deductible for all of this stuff to an out-of-pocket maximum of $14,300. So if you have some member of this family gets ill, lands in the ICU for three days, um, you're going to max out pretty quickly uh, your, um, the amount of spending that you need to do to get to that point. So in that year, you will have spent one quarter of your income you know, on healthcare. By definition, this is under insurance. We define under insurance as needing to spend more than 5% of your income 
uh, on health insurance costs. And this is, this is pretty profound uh, under insurance for uh, this. And, and this is what the ACA said would be okay. Um, and so, you know, this is bad for a wide range of reasons, but ultimately it's the cost sharing that I think is the biggest problem. One thing that we know is that when you have high deductibles for your care, you simply don't seek care because you're going to have to pay out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. And this was a, an interesting study where they looked at um, patients who had employer-based health coverage that was so-called Cadillac coverage. Um, when they lost that Cadillac coverage and went to a more sort of ordinary uh, health plan that, that, that wasn't quite so comprehensive and had higher deductibles, um, these patients sought preventative care you know, 10% less of the time, um, you know, going to the doctor's office 20% less, mental health care way less. So all of, these, all of these things meant these people used care less. Now you say, great, that saves the system money, but not if this is necessary care. And this effectively replicates the Rand Health, experiment, health Insurance Experiment from the early 80s, which is fascinating, that literally did randomize people into um, you know, comprehensive care with no copays versus you know, 95% copays and found the same thing. That if you had a high deductible, you didn't go to the doctor. And it didn't matter if it was an appropriate uh, or an inappropriate use of care. And so this is clearly going to cost the system because people are getting sicker. They're not uh, getting the care that they need. Um, and indeed, this has played out. This was a study published in JAMA, which looked at you know, how likely you were to have sought care when you were in the midst of, a, of an acute MI. If you were underinsured, uh, you actually were much more, you were more likely to delay seeking care because, of course, you knew that you were going to be stuck with the bill. So obviously that's suboptimal. Um, this was a cool study where they randomized patients into getting their um, post-MI medications for free or having a copay and then looking at the incidence of having a vascular event um, within the three, hour, three years after having their MI. And so, you know, their beta blocker, their statin, and their ACE inhibitor, and their aspirin were all free in one case. In the other case, they had copays. And you can see right away from these uh, curves that, you know, the people that had a copay were more likely to uh, have an adverse vascular event, implying that they were not, you know, compliant or adherent to their medications, presumably because of cost. Um, obviously, it doesn't prove that. But if, you know, all the things being equal, it does seem like the financial burden in this randomized controlled trial um, somehow uh, impacted them adversely. So then, of course, there's the question of whether or not the ACA was even affordable. I would argue no. These are GoFundMe pages for people. Uh, the fact that we even have GoFundMe pages for medical expenses is crazy. We're the only country in the world that has so many people that need GoFundMe campaigns to pay their medical expenses. So um, I, I, I would make an argument that it is not terribly affordable even when you do have insurance. So yes, the ACA has helped 20 million people get insurance, but insurance of course doesn't equal access. Um, you know, and there's still 30 million people that are uninsured, never mind the other 30 million that are underinsured. Um, it did create some interesting mechanisms that were not evidence-based to change the way that care is paid for. Um, and, you know, it facilitated greater cost shifting. There's really no question about that. It did make sure that the 10 essential benefits were covered and protected kids a little bit longer and protected against pre-existing conditions. And it did require a commitment from the government to keep it sustainable uh, in the long haul. So that was a quick summary of the ACA. Now let's go through the current plan in Congress. 
the repeal and replace plan, the American Health Care Act. So what does it repeal? It repeals the ACA mandates. Um, so it basically doesn't, you no longer are mandated to have health insurance. It repeals cost-sharing subsidies. If you ha if you were pretty low income, the government would actually kick in additional money um, under the ACA to help you with the expensive deductibles on your bronze plan. Um, it repealed the subsidies given, given for purchasing insurance, um, but it did replace these uh, subsidies with tax credits based on age. So it was previously, um, if you had less money, then you got more benefit. Now it's simply a function of your age. Um, if you're younger, you'll get a lower tax credit than if you're older, um, and then if this gets phased out at, at, at certain incomes. And, and you, can, you can purchase catastrophic plans uh, under the AHCA, which were uh, outlawed under the ACA. And so it repealed all that. It also repealed funding for the Prevention and Public Health Fund. This was about 12% of the CDC's budget this last year. Now my wife works for the Chicago Department of Public Health, and they just had, uh, they have to write grants every year to the CDC to fund the health department, which I think is stupid, right? This should be a line item on a city's budget where we fund public health, but it's not. They get the majority of their funding as a local health department in Chicago comes from the CDC and they have to write every year for these continuing grants. Uh, and so this is a huge chunk of that money that's gone for state and local health departments uh, under the AHCA because this fund is eliminated. Um, it repealed a ton of taxes that um, were mostly used for funding Medicare and the ACA, including a payroll tax, there's a tax on tanning beds, Ooh. tax on drug companies, the Cadillac tax on high cost plans, um, and the AHCA lowers the tax on withdrawals from, from, uh, from health savings accounts. It prohibits, you know, not surprisingly, federal funding for Planned Parenthood and phases out the metal, uh, you know, bronze, silver, platinum plans. So what does it keep? It does keep certain market rules. So you may stay on your plant, uh, parents' plants to the age of 26, so that's good. Um, you know, it keeps the concept of an exchange, even if it outlaws the, or if it eliminates the, the bronze requirements, you can still have health insurance marketplaces, whatever that means. There were some uh, benefit enhancements for Medicare under the ACA to help close that donut hole. Uh, that stuff stays. Uh, no cost sharing for preventive care. Okay, that's good. Um, and then what does it keep but allow states to opt out of? So in, in this, in the next set of things are, uh, were put in more recently, um, and basically within the AHCA it says states may apply for waivers so that any insurance company in that state doesn't have to do the following. They don't have to cover pre-existing conditions. They don't have to have lifetime limits on care. They don't have to cover the 10 essential benefits. And this is, these three things are what has really uh, energized people politically around this thing. Because if you have a, a state that applies for this waiver and gets it, then all the insurance products sold in that state don't have to cover these things the way that the ACA did. And then what does it add? Um, it does encourage the use of health savings accounts because it increases uh, your tax-free contribution limit. Um, it does add a state option to require employment as a condition for getting Medicaid. This always bothered me because the whole thing about Medicaid is it's if you don't have any money. So if you have a job, then presumably you're not really going to need Medicaid unless it's a really low paying job. So you know this is sort of counterintuitive because the people that are unemployed for whatever reason are people that are struggling and at a really high risk to the system. And, and yet we're gonna say, no, you can't have Medicaid. Um, it also converts federal Medicaid funding to a per capita allotment. So what the heck does all of this mean? 
basically it guts Medicaid funding. Um, and it means that they will use 2016, the number of people that were on Medicaid and the amount that was spent by that state for that year is gonna be the base. And then future decisions about how much funding a state gets for Medicaid will be reflected um, backwards based on uh, sort of this um, convoluted calculation. In essence, um, this is gonna really reduce states' flexibility for doing anything with Medicaid because the pot of money they get is not going to be there if they need to provide benefits and suddenly they have an influx of people on Medicaid. So um, what else? There'll be this penalty for late enrollment where you pay 30% of the premium to the insurer if you haven't maintained insurance. Now, this to me sounds an awful lot like a tax penalty that you'd pay to the government for not having insurance, except now instead of paying it to the government, we're just paying it to the insurer. So it's not really any different than a mandate with a tax penalty on it. It just says that uh, if you are gonna get insurance, um, you're gonna need to, uh, uh, to pay that additional premium to the insurance company. And then it establishes the state patient and state stability fund, about $130 billion over nine years, plus an additional $8 billion that was just put in last week. And this is a fund to help provide financial help for states to have uh, high-risk pools for people, promote access to preventative services, provide cost-sharing subsidies. It all sounds somewhat nice, although there's not evidence that high-risk pools work. Because what is a high-risk pool? This is people that have a ton of medical problems. They are high-risk, um, who can't otherwise get insurance. They can get insurance now within a high-risk pool, but it's super expensive for them, and it doesn't cover very much. So, you know, it's not really a, a great solution. Um, and the amount of money that's being poured into this is, is trivial compared to what would actually be needed for the number of people that are losing health care under the other changes that the AHCA is implementing. So why was it so hard to get it passed? Well, it really, in many respects, was ACA light, so, so conservatives weren't very happy with it. Of course, it was uh, the CBO said that the version in March uh, would save some money, but that 24 million people would lose health insurance. So we'd sort of be back where we were before the ACA in the first place. So that, I think, mobilized a lot of people against it. And they haven't had a chance to evaluate the current bill. I just read they're going to release their scoring of it uh, in the week of May 26. Um, but presumably it will probably save even more money than this and leave more people without coverage. So a few other particular criticisms of the AHCA. It is a huge tax break uh, on the wealthy, and that comes by actually gutting Medicare. So, you know, if, you, if, you, if they say they want to protect Medicare, this is not the way to do it, because by re repealing these taxes, um, you actually end up accelerating Medicare's insolvency um, by uh, a few years, because the money that those taxes are going to cover is actually supporting the Medicare system. And uh, the people that benefit the most from that, that tax cut um, the vast majority make over half a million dollars a year. Um, pitched a different way, if you have a couple that makes $50,000 a year versus a couple that makes $10 million a year, currently the couple making $50,000 a year pays about 3% of their um, taxes goes into Medicare. Um, whereas the couple making a little bit more pays about 3.8%. Uh, after this repeal, we now have people making vastly less shouldering on a percentage basis much more um, of their income uh, on a percentage basis is going to uh, is going to fund Medicare. So that just seems regressive and kind of crazy to me. Um, and of course limits all these protections for people, right? The quality of these insurance products will go down, um, you know, especially when states start opting out. 
Um, health savings accounts really only help people that have disposable income, like rich people. Um, and it's really tough on the old. There's a, a maximum premium currently under the ACA that says that premiums for elderly people can only be three times greater than those for young people under that plan. Under the AHCA, you can now charge uh, premiums that are fivefold greater for um, people that are old but have not gotten to be of Medicare age yet. So, um, God, more criticisms. Oh, yeah, what about the Medicaid changes? So, let's say that there's a recession again. We now have double-digit unemployment. Tons of people are uninsured. Under the AHCA system, a state gets that amount of money. They don't get more money to provide more care. So suddenly you have more people that would qualify for Medicaid and no money um, to support them in that, um, in contrast to the way things are now. So I, I think this is going to result in, I mean, it's, a, it's you know, they pitch it as a, increases states' flexibility, but I actually think it, it limits states' flexibility for how to manage their Medicaid programs. Um, you know, age-based rather than income-based tax credits don't make a whole lot of sense to me. And of course it does save money, but who is paying for those savings? We are. So what about single payer? What about advocating for repealing the ACA and replacing it with a Canadian-style system? And we'll talk about that uh, in the last few minutes that we have. So this would be an equitable system. Everybody would be covered for what they need. It would be cost-effective. Cost and where do I get the cost-effective data? It's very easy to simply look at uh, Canadian data and get a sense of this. They enacted their Medicare system for everybody uh, starting in 1963 and completing the implementation by 1971 across all of the provinces in Canada. We were growing our expenses at the same rate uh, on a per capita basis and then they promptly bent the cost curve and now are, you know, spend about half what we do on uh, per person for their health care. So clearly, this is a way of controlling costs. This is another way of looking at it. Their administrative costs are vastly lower overall than ours are in the United States. It is this cost savings that we would pass on to covering everybody um, in an equitable way. Um, it will improve health. This is one way of looking at it. Canada's infant mortality used to be greater than ours. It's now less than ours. Um, their life expectancies are greater than ours and growing at a rate that's faster than ours as well. So some, you know, somewhat crude measures of health, but that make the suggestion that they're doing okay. Um, it lifts the burden of covering healthcare from employers. Nobody starts a small business because they want to provide healthcare insurance for their, you know, employees. This is a, this is a crazy marriage that dates back to World War II and we could spend an hour just talking about the history of that, but ultimately, um, this is this. We are the only uh, country in the world that that you know marries employment with health insurance in this sort of draconian way. Um, and you know, I think you can make an argument that that a system like this would improve our lives both as, as physicians and as citizens. You know, we wouldn't have to fight with insurers anymore. We wouldn't have to um, have people you know filing for medical bankruptcy all of the time. You know. Presumably this would reduce and simplify our paperwork and maybe even reduce burnout, which is a huge issue, uh, especially for, for intensivists. Um, this was a uh, recent survey looking at the causes of physician burnout. Number one, too many bureaucratic tasks. And so, um, you know, presumably uh, simplifying life for physicians under a system like this 
um, would make that better. So why not single payer? What are the arguments that people have against it? Well, the government will never be as efficient as the free market. I don't think that there's any evidence that that's the case. Right now, if Medicare pays out 97 cents of every dollar that it brings in, that's pretty darn efficient. And I would love, if a private insurance company could do it at that level, fine, we'll let a private insurance company do it. But up until this point, there's not been a private insurer that got anywhere near close to that from an efficiency standpoint. Oh, there'll be rationing or death panels or waiting lists for care. This is all sort of nonsense, right? Because we ration people based on their incomes right now. If you don't have um, health insurance or if you're a low-income person, you don't get care. You know, you come to one of the free clinics, you can wait 12 months for an appointment with rheumatology at, at Cook County in Chicago, and, you know, that's fine, but that's rationing. That's, that's limiting their ability to access care. Um, in terms of waiting lists, uh, there was a study done comparing the amount of time it would take to call up a physician's office in Boston versus in Canada just to get a primary care visit. Um, and you got a, a visit with your primary care doc on average about six weeks sooner in Canada than you did in Boston. So, you know, we've got waiting lists in the United States. Um, you know, it's, it's simply, uh, uh, you don't have that for primary care, um, which is arguably where a lot of our money should be spent. Now, um, <clears throat> so, uh, oh, there's lack of choice of your insurer. Don't you want to be able to pick the best insurance plan for your family? No. I hate that. Every year, they're like, you've got to elect for your benefits again. And I'm like, oh, I got to compare like the five different plans that the University of Chicago offers and try and pick the best one. I don't want to do that. Like, I could not care less about picking the best insurer for my family if I get everything covered under a system like this. Uh, it's a huge increase in taxes. This is a, this is a true point um, because this has to be paid for somehow. But um, the, the, uh, the modeling suggests that 95% of patients will spend less in taxes on their health care um, than they do on insurance premiums. Oh, and everybody would be covered. So this sounds like a pretty good deal for me. What about all the people in the industry that will lose their jobs? Rest assured, uh, we will need those skill sets as we expand Medicare to cover an additional 200 million people. Um, people will overuse care. And, and again, I don't think that there's great evidence that this is the case, but honestly, I would rather people overuse care than underuse it. Because when you underuse care, you're dying, right? You're dying. You're making decisions on a financial basis for whether or not to seek care that are not the right decisions. And it's crazy that that is such a burden on our healthcare system. So I, I frankly would be more ethically comfortable with people overusing it uh, than underusing it. And then, um, oh, this is going to stifle innovation. And I struggle with this one. Like, where has the private insurance ever contributed to innovation in this country? Not at all. If you want innovation in medical records, go to the VA, right? That is a taxpayer-funded medical record system that is really easy to use. I remember when I was a medical student, you could order beer on it, which I thought was the most amazing thing. But, um, but you know, honestly, it's there to document what you did for a patient, not to document for the purposes of billing. And so to me, it blows epic out of the water. And, and, and that is a, an example of an innovation that went just fine. I don't think that there's evidence or any reason to think that under a system like this, people are gonna be less innovative. In fact, when you let physicians you know, practice the way they want to, 
arguably you're going to get more innovative approaches uh, instead of burdening them with the administrative nonsense that we have now. Oh, there's going to be massive cronyism if we have a single-payer system. Let's be clear, there's already massive cronyism in the system. I don't, I don't know why this would make it any worse. You know, we saw a few years ago Marilyn Tavner step down as the head of CMMS and probably go to work for the health insurance industry. So, um, I, I, again, I don't think that's a, a valid argument either. And, and so this, I was just reading on the plane today uh, from the latest issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, an uh, ideas and opinion piece by a physician named Don DeWitt, who talked about uh, her practice in Australia, compared it with her practice here. She said, in Australia, documentation was focused on patient care rather than minutia related to billing. Persons in the U.S. worry about limited choice in single-payer systems, but the Australian formulary determined by physicians proved to be worry-free. The Australian physician enab uh, system enables physicians to do more of what we love and what we are trained to do. And of course, we know what Trump thinks of Australian healthcare. Just last week, he said, ours is going to be fantastic, but I shouldn't say this to the great gentleman and my friend from Australia because you have better healthcare than we do. So obviously, Trump knows. Uh, that it's better there, just he hasn't uh, bought into that yet. So, um, you know, I would argue that we should support HR 676, um, which is a House bill supporting a single-payer measure, has over 108 co-sponsors, which is well over half of the Democratic Congress folks. It's only 30 pages long. It is a simple, practical, and evidence-based solution to the problems of cost, excess, and equity that we have now. I will talk more about that tonight. Um, and, and get into a little bit more specifics of how a single-payer system could be constructed and financed. But if you want, um, you're welcome to contact me if you'd like more info about references or interested more in single-payer. And just so that I give the other side some, you know, some lip service. If you are interested in, in the philosophy of free market solutions for healthcare, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is your go-to source. This is a, uh, a free market organization that, that would think that all everything I just said is um, heresy. And so you'll get the other side if you want a, a balanced debate. So um, I would argue that this is what we need. Um, and with the time we have left, I'm happy to take questions. Will the, hi, thank you. It was very interesting. Um, will the premiums be, um, the benefits will be the same. Will the premiums be prorated for income, you think, uh, to make it work? And the last part is, without doing this major rationing, do you think there, sh there will be some measure of not limiting some extreme costs, such as paying $150,000 for a drug that will prolong life by two weeks? Right, right. 5% of people? Or so um, so the, with under the single-payer plan, at least that we have proposed, there are a few things. One, it would be funded under a, a sort of a uh, it, we would try to fund it under a progressive tax structure so that um, the idea behind a progressive tax structure is that if you make vastly less, you pay less in taxes um, as opposed to a regressive tax structure, which is if you, if you make less, you pay more as a percentage in taxes. So um, it would probably be a payroll tax of somewhere around 2 to 3% on individuals and around four to five percent on businesses but um, you know ultimately it would be structured in a progressive way so that uh, it doesn't in you know those percentages mean a lot more when you make a lot less um, as far as um, one of the other other elements that we would advocate for is the ability for the government to negotiate drug prices with um, pharmaceutical manufacturers so the, probably the biggest reason that we pay more than anybody else is that Medicare is forbidden to have a formulary. And so they are forbidden to negotiate uh, drug prices with 
um, pharmaceutical companies. And of course, Medicare is where you know, tons of people are getting their drug benefits from. And so um, the estimate is we pay about 40% more on average and that we could cut those costs by uh, easily that much if we were able to do a little bit more negotiating. And that would help um, rein in uh, a lot of those costs, I think. Um, you know, I don't know that we will go so far as to have uh, what the National Health Service of the UK has, which is the, this is the NICE, that you know, basically um, you know, really is, is, is very, very intentional about, uh, intentional about looking at quality adjusted life years and, and deciding what ends up on the formulary. But, but clearly, uh, at least under the system that, that we're advocating for, um, starting with, with negotiated pricing for drugs will cut prescription drug uh, spending by a tremendous amount. So. Yeah, thank you. I remember hearing a podcast about what is a year of life worth, yeah, and exactly. that's a big argument. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Tonight is the SCCM uh, chapter, Baltimore chapter.